Welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast, where we feature women who are nailing it in life. Hello and welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast, where we're creating a platform for impressive women to inspire the world. So it's been one heck of a ride since we've launched, and I want to thank so many of you for being so supportive, for sharing this on social media, for already starting to write incredible comments. And for those of you who haven't yet been able to take any of these actions but really want to help support what I'm doing, what would be the most helpful thing is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere you find your podcasts. So that would be amazing to be able to help me out. Let's bump up the algorithm, let it work in our favor, and hopefully get me in some of these new and notable sections because that's really the goal. And uh, I wanted to take a minute to read a couple of cool comments and things like that that I've been seeing around. So taking a quick peek on iTunes, uh, Asif Shah 09 says, thoroughly listenable. That's a great way to be. <laughs> Fantastic to hear new stories from new voices. So that's ultimately the goal of the podcast is being able to help bring incredible women on this platform to ultimately inspire those of you that are listening. Um, Diana J28, great guests, great hosts, and fabulous topics. Keep them coming, Julie. Can't wait for the next one. Oh, thank you. And Erwin. Uh, is this podcast really worth listening to? Hell yeah. One thing I would like to drop is that your work is awesome and informational. One thing that would separate this from any other podcast, and it's part educational and uh, hint practical too. So thank you. Hell yeah. I like that. <laughs> awesome. And I've been getting some comments on Facebook too, so feel free to like our page if you haven't already. And uh, <laughs> an interesting comment that I saw here is, uh, and I was waiting for this, was, uh, quote, what about allowing men on the show also to get the other perspective, quote? So what's funny about this <laughs> is it first misses the point. So if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you've already understood a little bit of the mission and vision behind why we created this podcast. But uh, it, it really kind of inspires and, and underlines why this podcast is so important and why your support is so greatly appreciated. But yeah, it's what about allowing men on this show? So men are so more than welcome to listen to this show. I really, in fact, encourage it. And I think there's a lot that you'd be able to learn. But men have so many platforms already to speak their mind, to share, to be able to express themselves. And because women have historically been a marginalized voice, this is a very explicit reason, an explicit safe place for incredible women of all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic status and job profession, etc., can come to be themselves and be totally unfiltered in what they share and what they want to share. So thank you for missing the point and hopefully you've learned. <laughs> 
So rate and review, that's my big takeaway for now. And uh, thinking about what's happening in our current news landscape, political landscape, especially in Canada, was legalization of cannabis. Weed is legal now. That's amazing. So I know a lot of my friends and people I know who have been active users of cannabis up to now, uh, to them, they're like, nothing has changed. This is fine. But to a lot of other individuals who perhaps have never you know, smoked cannabis before, uh, especially to our neighbors to the south, to other individuals, I think this is really, really exciting. So... Uh, What's really cool is this actually came through with a promise made by our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, when he was first elected in 2015. And now I know there's a lot of opinions on Justin Trudeau. It's kind of cool to actually see something that he said he was going to do, which is a little bit controversial and not without, I'm sure, a ton of pushback actually coming through to fruition. And uh, I wanted to take a couple minutes to actually walk through what this legalization entails since I've had a ton of questions being thrown my way just from conversations. And I was also recently in the U.S. And so I know many of you have lots of questions, too, namely, like, how soon can I take a trip up to Toronto and and <laughs> be able to enjoy, I suppose. Right. So um, first First off, uh, cannabis is legal, but that doesn't mean everything with cannabis is legal and is not legal in the exact same way. So every single province and territory in Canada has different rules on where it can be bought, where it can be consumed and how much you can carry. And uh, and also not every single form of weed is legal. So right now, only dried and fresh pot oils, seeds, and plants are legal for purchase. And so, you know, things like pre-rolled joints and oil-filled pills, uh, those types of things. So many of you, especially if you like things like edibles, um, that's technically not legal. <laughs> so edibles, extracts, and concentrates still not available um, to, you know, I would say legally con consume or legally purchase um, in the uh, federal and provincial stores, but apparently the government has promised to make these regulated uh, within the next year. So the age of purchase is 19, except for Alberta and Quebec, where it's 18, bless them. <laughs> and you're actually allowed to carry up to 30 grams of cannabis in public. So just so you know, about one gram is enough to roll like one pretty large joint or maybe a couple smaller ones. So 30 grams is pretty decent. And when you're flying within Canada, which is a pretty big piece here, you're allowed to take 30 grams with you. So I guess it gives a whole other <laughs> description to uh, getting high, mile high club, right? <laughs> and you actually can grow cannabis too. So you can grow up to four plants at home. So I think many people are really excited to start flexing their green thumbs. And, uh, but unfortunately in Manitoba and Quebec, that's actually not a thing. So that's actually not legal there. So everywhere except Manitoba or Quebec, you can grow up to four plants at home legally. So for me, what's really interesting is thinking about how it's becoming 
integrated and will be more integrated into society. So it's very much always been quite stigmatized. Um, my dad, I know growing up when we'd go for a walk or something on the street and we'd walk by someone smoking cannabis, he'd always say, oh, there's that wacky tobacco again, <laughs> which always made me laugh. Um, but what's cool is being able to see how people who perhaps thought of it as something pretty evil, like a narcotic, et cetera, are now going to be able to think about maybe trying it for the first time. I actually had a, a friend of mine, she said her aunt is excited now to try it now that it's officially become legal because she's playing by the rules. And, uh, and you know, her niece is like, hey, I want to be your first phone call. Let's do this together. This is going to be fun. So hopefully this is going to be a positive thing. Maybe it's going to bring families together. I mean, I feel like cannabis typically has more of a you know, warm and fuzzy type connotation as opposed to drinking, which typically leads to fighting. <laughs> so all good things. But also, it's going to be funny to think about like a work event, right? Going to a work event, having a beer, a couple of drinks, that's a pretty normal thing. So I wonder at what point will it become acceptable to, you know, maybe have a joint <laughs> at a work event, right? I feel like we're not there yet, but it'll be uh, pretty cool to see as this kind of continues forward. But obviously, with any legalization of something that not everyone has experience with, I feel like there's a lot of fast and tight rules on this one. So um, I know both with Air Canada and WestJet, They've prohibited recreational cannabis use for pilots um, in other, quote unquote, safety sensitive positions at all times. So even recreational use, even if you're not on duty. Um, I know there's been conversations with police officers, similar things. So, hey, you can't smoke within 27 days of uh, appearing for duty. Pretty much means unless you're unemployed, you're probably not ever technically allowed to smoke. So it, it's challenging because I understand where that comes from. You certainly don't want to be in a plane being flown by someone who could potentially be under the influence. But I feel like these regulations are not super reasonable and it's going to be difficult to enforce. So I feel like, you know, we're saying like, ah, just don't do it. Don't do it at all. But I feel like we need to kind of come a, a bit further with how we decide to help people understand it, help people understand the effects of it and tolerance and how we can, you know, better legislate, especially in certain positions. What I'm excited about being an advocate self is looking at the big picture. So meaning there's been so many Canadians convicted of simple cannabis possession. So soon they're actually going to be able to apply for a pardon. And according to Justin Trudeau, he said the next step is going to be offering amnesty to past users who were handed a criminal record for cannabis possession under you know, the prohibition time. Almost makes you think of flappers and, you know, putting alcohol in bowling balls and things like that. <laughs> but uh, apparently the NDP, since we're going to have to start thinking about federal elections soon, the NDP has actually proposed legislation that would allow Canadians with a criminal record for simple possession of cannabis to make an application to the Parole Board of Canada for an expungent order. So that's huge because cannabis possession, a lot of these very low-grade crimes, uh, in a lot of cases, 
they're racialized. So this is used as an excuse to, you know, unfortunately, um, marginalize already marginalized communities and uh, a, a lot of tensions between police and a lot of these marginalized communities are often um, pivoted, pivoted around um, something kind of small, like, again, having a tiny little bit of pot on you and... <sighs> It, for me, it's so problematic for so many reasons. So it's really encouraging, very exciting to see how this is all kind of starting to go. And uh, in Ontario here, so more local to to where I am, um, we have the Ontario Cannabis Store. So it was an online weed shop and they are... <laughs> surprised, quote unquote, <laughs> at how uh, popular it was as soon as we got uh, legalized. So they received 1,200 orders of cannabis within the first hour of launching. And within the first 24 hours, the website received a total of 100,000 orders and 1.3 million unique visits. Massive. So, like, as I mentioned, many people, they're already smoking weed, but I think this is going to just completely broaden the understanding of what it is and how it can be used and why it shouldn't be demonized. And one of my favorite stories that I saw through this whole legalization was in Edmonton, apparently there was a, a lineup to buy cannabis from a retail store, and this Bless her, this nine-year-old girl guide, Alina Childs, she shows up with her father just uh, in front of the store, and, and she actually sells out of her thin mints and little girl guide cookies in less than 45 minutes to all these people waiting in line to buy cannabis. <laughs> and man, she earned 120 bucks for her girl guides. So that is certainly a legit lady in the making. I really hope she runs a business someday because, man, her business strategy was on point with that one. <laughs> All right. So this week's guest, I am so excited to share with you. This is a woman who is so talented. She's actually an illustrator, so both regular illustration and also now digital illustrations. But not only do I think she is one of the most talented illustrators I've ever come across, but she has survived breast cancer. And not only has she survived breast cancer, but she's now an aspiring comedian. So to me, she is such an inspiration. She has gone through so much and through all that adversity, she's coming out the other side laughing. <laughs> so I am so excited to introduce her. Kimberly Whitchurch, incredible human being. I hope you love our interview as much as I love doing it. It wasn't without a couple shots of bourbon. Thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to have you. I've been a longtime admirer of your work, and I've been seeing all sorts of incredible things that you've been working on and excited for you to share a little bit more. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm very delighted to be here. Awesome. And I've been a fan of you for a long time, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite ever models, my <laughs> 
Amazing. I know. I, I was a part-time model. No, not actually, but uh, <laughs> Kimberly is a very talented artist, illustrator, and I've had the pleasure of doing some modeling for her and a few other artists as well. So certainly a, a huge fan. And uh, just to be able to kick things off with our format today is going through our list of 10 questions mm-hmm. to get to know you a little bit better. And I'd love to kick things off with number one, which is what advice would you give to your teenage self? I've been thinking about that since I saw the question, and there's actually two ways this could go. And one way is uh, stick with science, really work harder at math, because there are many times when I think I really should have gone into science and possibly been a doctor. And in fact, the amount of time I've spent in the medical system in the past few years, I've kind of sneakily acquired a medical education, um, but I'm my only patient. So uh, that's one, stick with the math and science and uh, draw as a side hustle. But the advice that I'd give to myself, no matter which direction I went in, was hang in there. It gets better. It gets more fun as you get older and get more confident. Because high school is, I think, not fun for most people. And it was like significantly not fun for me, but um, everything's been, I'm a late bloomer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would just say to myself, it gets better. I empathize with you. I certainly went through it in high school as well. I feel like many of us have and to varying degrees just haven't talked about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're still in denial about it to a small degree. <laughs> <laughs> so that's fair. True. And yep. you mentioned you'd be a doctor. Why would you be a doctor? I've always been fascinated with the body, with health, um, human beings in general. Uh, A story I'm not sure I've told anybody is that when I was really little, like seven, maybe eight, um, my parents had a big medical textbook for some reason, like a kind of layman's textbook, and I was reading it. And I was looking at all the overlays, and I was reading how to tell your children about sex, and just everything. And when I was around eight, they took it away from me because they figured I was starting to understand they were wrong. Uh, I was already getting it. And I just always was fascinated by this and not really afraid of the sight of blood, unless it was my own. Um, And in a funny way, I guess I still do work with humans all the time because my entire art practice is about humans. That's amazing. Well, yes, it's about the form. Mm, Exactly. That's incredible. That's so interesting how we can have a fear of our own blood, but not others. Well, uh, (laughs) other people bleeding, you can help them, but bleeding yourself, ah. (laughs) It's so funny. I I actually, so I I studied science. I I did a degree in kinesiology. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And and it was very funny looking at where I am right now. It seems to baffle many folks. They say like, what, how did you get to where you are now doing an undergrad in kinesiology and a minor one in gender studies. Mm -hmm. It's like very, very funny. Um, Life is like that. (laughs) It's true. But finishing from that degree, I actually gave half a thought to paramedicine. Mm -hmm. But for me, my sort of squeaky part is I can't deal with vomit. Not even my own. It's um, not my thing. I can't do it. (laughs) One of my best friends is a nurse and she says every nurse has their squick point. Uh, vomit she doesn't care about Mm -hmm. poo pee she doesn't care Mm -hmm. but the it's phlegm Mm -hmm. so the second any of her patients goes and she's (laughs) on the floor I do not wish to deal like uh and I I know what she means I watched a friend the other day clean out his trach a little bit and as I 
Like, is that mucus or saliva? Yes. Oh, yeah, I'm, wow. I'm just, yeah, I'm not going to, no. Hardcore. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Man, that's that's incredible. Well, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I bow down to people who can deal with vomit because for me, that's my kryptonite. <laughs> Good to know. Ooh. Right? right? Oh, oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Question two. What's your proudest accomplishment? Honestly, it's still being alive. Um, and that's because I, I I believe I really should have died. I was sick in a way that if it had been discovered any later, I'm pretty sure I would have been dead anyway. Um, I lived through ridiculously rare complications of cancer. Um, I did it while I was suddenly single, and my whole life changed. And I was very, very sick for more than a year, and then recovering for more than a year after that. And I'm still alive. And there are times when I'm pretty sure statistically I honestly should be dead. But I'm not, and I'm not entirely sure why, but I'm still here. So it's just staying standing through, well, sometimes lying down, but still <laughs> being alive after surviving a major shoulder surgery, leaving my husband, finding out I had cancer the next day, still leaving him, having surgeries all on that side, moving house, and etc. I'm still alive. Holy cow. Yeah. So you know how Carrie Fisher says youth and beauty are not accomplishments? Right. Uh, which is true. They're nice, but they're not accomplishments. Mm -hmm. I think um, in addition to anything I've done professionally, I think just doing that was my proudest moment or thing, perhaps. Yeah, that is, that's incredible. And obviously, we're incredibly, incredibly happy to have you here. Thank you so First much. And foremost. <laughs> um, but that's huge. Can you tell us a bit more about that journey with cancer? And feel free, as much or as little detail as you feel sure. comfortable with. Um, well, the first thing I can tell you, and I hope it makes you laugh, is in my peer support group at Gilda's Club, I had a dear friend who's no longer with us, a Norwegian nurse whose name was Arnie, and he hated the word journey, like loathed it, cancer journey. And so we used to call it dropping the J-bomb. And <laughs> after he passed, whenever anybody new came in the group and talked about their journey, we would just kind of snicker and <laughs> maybe tell them, <laughs> uh, be that as it may. Uh, what happened? Well, um, it was a very hard year, 2014. I did start with a big shoulder reconstruction, and I was still in physio for that when I was sent for a much earlier than normal mammogram. It was just the luck of the draw. And um, I had told my husband of quite a few years that I was going to leave, and the next morning I found out that I had cancer. And when I tell you that I left anyway, you know it wasn't a whim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. So I that takes some That takes some cojones. Well, it seemed, like the only, yeah, it seemed like the only real choice. And I was really lucky to find my way into a good co-op. So housing was sorted eventually. But um, everything else was hard. Like I had um, the first surgery, uh, started on chemo, um, had the second and third surgeries at the same time. They did not go very well. I was a wound care patient for several months. Um, and was very late to radiation. And then I took 25 rounds of radiation and was subsequently a burn patient. Oh <laughs> and then um, while I was recovering from that, and I still didn't get all my physio done, I had uh, a very major life-threatening complication called pulmonary embolism, which is clots in your lung. And I had no real 
um, I had really had no symptoms. I just kind of knew something was wrong. I went to the doctor and they sent me to emergency and it turns out I had them, both lungs were filled with them. But I didn't die. I didn't die and I'm still on blood thinners. And a month later, I fell over and broke my foot. And that's oh the God. one where people, yeah, that's the reaction <laughs> oh, I usually get. No. Everything that happened, and then I fell over and broke my foot. Of course. <laughs> which will be the title of my graphic memoir. I'm not kidding about that. I really am writing it. Oh. Yeah, so through all of that and adjusting to being single and being a, like a very, very sick person but living alone and reaching out on Facebook to friends when I really needed help, because for months I wasn't even allowed to lift more than four pounds and then ten pounds which is quite disabling when you live alone. Yeah. But through all of that, I kept on drawing and I kept on writing and then I just kept on keeping on, I guess. That's I'm wondering what I was going to do with the rest of my life because, you know, like not to put too fine a point on it, I'm middle-aged and suddenly I'm having to reinvent myself and figure out why I lived. Wow. That does sound a bit dramatic, doesn't it? It, it, it certainly does. And, and for most of us, if we pick about part that story and you look at one of those things that happened, that would be the worst news yeah. to that person's life. Only one of those things. Only one of those things. Right? I get you it know? all out of the way at once. Yeah. yeah. Shoot. So you've certainly banked some karma, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> you think. Two weeks ago, I lost my purse and everything in it. Oh, <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. I went through kind of a breakup uh, two weeks before that. But like, what did I do? I immediately sat down and wrote it into a routine, as one does. So you're pretty much the most resilient person in the world. I never thought of it that way, but now that I look back, it's like, I guess I must be. I must be. Seriously. Wow. And so you're talking about cancer journey and the word journey being kind of trite. So (laughs) give me a first class ticket and then we can talk about the journey. Right? Fair (laughs) enough. So if it's not the J word, what's, what's a better way to talk about this stuff? Because I still feel like there's a lot of stigma around it, and especially for people who haven't experienced that or they haven't been close to anyone who've gone through that they it it feels uncomfortable it is uncomfortable and they told me at the beginning when I was diagnosed and moving into treatment when it was revealed how serious it was they said you will find that some people in your life who you thought you could absolutely depend on will not be there for you they're just not going to be there you will also find that people that are relatively peripheral in your life um, will suddenly step up And that is exactly my experience. And in fact, one of the people that really stepped up was an artist that I met at Dr. Sketchy's. And she was wonderful. She helped me move. She brought me food. Um, The first night that I was sitting alone in my own apartment after my um, husband and his girlfriend left after helping move me in, um, she just stayed and she said, I'm going to stay here until you're okay with being here by yourself. Wow. That's amazing. But at the same time, um, an immediate family member basically never contacted me. Um, That person would occasionally post things on Facebook about, my sister is a warrior, or, you know, think about my sister who has cancer, but um, they never got in touch with me. And when I recently saw them face-to-face and mentioned that, um, they said, yeah, I didn't know what to say. Wow. Um, Without an apology. And I said, the only thing you can say really is, I'm so sorry this is happening. And if you really want to, you can say, what can I do to help? Although I can tell you as a public service announcement, um, if you want to say that to a person who has cancer or any other serious illness, the better thing to say is like, let me do this. 
and mm -hmm. offer something concrete, like, I am going to bring you food on such and such a day. I am going to drive you to your chemo. Because when you say to somebody, ask me if you need anything, mm -hmm. you put them in the position of having to ask. And it's so much, they've got so much going on. Um, it really is appreciated when you say, I'm coming to take you out for food and I'm going to wash dishes. That's <laughs> and I was really lucky wow. to have some amazing friends who stuck by me because I have no family in this time zone. Wow. That's actually really good advice because myself included, I tend to think of myself as someone who likes to try to help, mm. but I'd probably fall in that camp of, hey, let me know if there's anything I can do that seems pretty passive. And it, it feels kind of crappy when I, when I think about it after hearing this. So that's certainly um, going to change the way that I personally approach people well, in my life who are going through that. So the hard part is that people sometimes feel really guilty afterwards. And yeah. like some of those friends have, who weren't in my life have, have stayed away. And I think it's possibly because they feel bad. Huh. Um, and I understand that. And when it comes to offering like vague help as opposed to offering concrete help, it's still a really good impulse. I mean, unless somebody actually told you, you wouldn't know. So don't feel bad about that. It's just the main thing about having cancer that is probably true for everybody is you have no idea how exhausting it is. It's exhausting. And the other thing is, depending on your chemo, you may be not just tired, but also you can't think as well. Like it affects your cognition mm -hmm. um, for months. Um, so as well as being bald and sick and experiencing new things with every round of chemo, um, you're not personality-wise exactly who you should be, mm -hmm. and it's hard. Yeah. That's an understatement. Yeah, I well, you can't really know what it's like unless you go through it or help a partner with it, and even then you don't know how it feels. But I lived, and it's my proudest accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I would certainly answer that question in the same way if I were in your shoes. Mm -hmm. And that's incredible. And I really appreciate you being so open to share that story. And I have to say, I'm really impressed with how outspoken you are and have been able to be, especially with that family member, because I think family, especially in times of distress or when something is happening, adversity, blood family can sometimes be really complicated and it Quite. seems like again another understatement but it seems like that's an area where we all kind of have our own issues and pieces to sort out and as you're sharing that story it makes me think of my aunt and she's been suffering from multiple sclerosis for a long time that's and a cruel one it's yeah it's not not a pretty one and um, unfortunately, right now, she's just in palliative care. And so it's, it's you know, not a good scene. But uh, when this first happened, her partner left her. <gasps> and it was a, hey, this is not what I signed up for mm -hmm. kind of situation. And yeah. so fortunately, unfortunately, I mean, it wasn't her decision, which is sometimes even worse if that's, you know, you're the person that's... Well, it happened to me because yeah. uh, I had a partner who, um, during my chemo, uh, did leave me and said I, he felt bad because he didn't want to be that person who dumped his girlfriend when she had cancer. Ugh. And I said, well, um, you, you kind of are. I think you should own that. Mm -hmm. He did come back, um, mainly because he said he, he cared about me and he really didn't want me to go through all of this alone. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a whole other story, and I recently <laughs> wrote some of it into a routine. Just saying. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm excited to hear more. I'm going to have to see perform. He did say when he was breaking up with me that one of the things that really bothered him was seeing me in pain because there was one particular round of chemo that caused bone pain. Mm-hmm. And bone pain is literally deep, <laughs> deep inside Ugh. and intractable. And there were times when um, the really strong pain meds wouldn't touch it. And I was like writhing on the couch. I was oh. in so much pain. And he said it bothered him and he didn't want to see that. And he, he didn't want to be there for that. And I was like, <laughs> well, dude, neither do I. Like, I really don't, but I have no choice. Although I can tell you if I'm in a lot of pain and you don't have to come over. Like You're really. like, buddy, try being the person who's actually in pain. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. You know what? Humans are off. complicated. <laughs> Humans are complicated and awful and lovely. And he did many good things for me. And he came to every chemo. And he spent days off in the hospital with me when I was an inpatient many times. Mm-hmm. And I really can't fault him for that. He did fair what enough. he could. Fair enough. That's fair. I feel like I have so many questions to ask you on this, but... I think we're going to have on to the fun stuff. Yeah, we know we've got more. We've got on more to the fun stuff. <laughs> All right. Question three. How do you balance work and life? Well, my work is pretty free form at the moment because I don't have a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. I'm entirely freelance. And I did experience a bit of a hiatus from all of my work while I was sick. I couldn't work. Makes and sense. as you may know, I worked a lot in entertainment as a caricaturist. And I had several agents that I'd worked with for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I was, unfortunately, I had to tell them that I was sick and I couldn't take gigs. I was advised by other people in the industry to never tell them that I was sick. But what choice did I have? I couldn't just blow gigs and not tell them why. Yeah, that's terrible advice. It's true. (laughs) But that person also told me he had been sick himself that when he was better, um, he found it really, really hard to get back to work. He was a full-time entertainer. And people are like, oh, didn't he die? Or, oh, I hear he's better, but like, don't book him. I mean, what if he gets sick on stage? I mean, there is actually a stigma, just like you say. But I had no choice. I had to tell people that I was sick because Uh I needed help. And also I couldn't work. And I, I have to say that a lot of those agents haven't really been in touch. I think they kind of moved on and found other people that do my specialty. Um, and that's okay because even though I love caricaturing and I love gigs, I'm moving into other areas now. So how do I balance work and life? Well, in a way I don't because, oh gosh, this sounds cliche. Drawing is my life. It is what I do all the time. <laughs> drawing and I love to make people laugh. And so there's, I need a lot of alone time and I get that because I live alone. But I, I get out in the world and I, I learn and I like to draw in cafes and I go to comedy clubs, and I somehow it just all balances. It just does. That's amazing. And it's also because, uh, you know, not going to lie, I live alone. I don't have children. You know, I'm not reporting to a boss. And so it is a little easier for me to arrange my time around uh, what I have to do, but also if I have the energy, because Mm -hmm. I'm still not a 100% healthy person, um, and maybe I never will be, but I've learned to work around that. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing. And you talked about you're doing, you're doing slightly different kinds of work these mm-hmm. days. So tell us more a little bit. Well, I decided that I really needed to join the 21st century and learn how to draw digitally because I do a lot of drawing and I do 
uh, portraits and I do illustrations to commission and everything was 100% traditional media. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about digital media. And I just decided a little over a year ago that that needed to change. So I asked advice of friends who had devices. I went shopping. I chose my hardware. And for the longest time, I didn't really do anything with my tablet because I said, we're not really friends yet. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. And one day I just sat myself down in a library and said, I'm going to draw today. And I chose a software program in trial. I loved it. The next day I bought the pro version. The day after that, I think I started my Instagram account. And you can see the progress of me teaching myself how to draw digitally. Over the past year, I now have 603 drawings on that Instagram. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So I taught myself how to draw digitally um, based on an entire career uh, working hard at drawing in the traditional manner. The difference is that I used to go to life drawing with a bundle buggy <laughs> with all of my different paper pads in it and pens and pencils and ink and everything I might feel like using that night. Now I generally just bring the tablet that lives in my purse which is called My Precious. That would be the tablet, not the purse. My Precious. My Precious. <laughs> and I can draw in any media I want and save it and post it and do whatever I want with it and draw it to pixel size. Wow. Yeah. Technology. I know. What a blast. <laughs> I know. I love living in the future. That's so cool. So it's more or less like a fancy iPad with uh, a stylus of sorts or exactly what i use is uh am i allowed to mention the exact everything sure okay why not so friends of mine had ipads and mm. ipad pros and i checked them out mm. and i'm not the biggest apple fan uh partly because i don't like their um their ethos i don't like the walled garden mm -hmm. of you have to go through an i through your account you can only load it with things that they approve they know everything you load like uh, i'm an android person so um, I did check out the Apple. I didn't like what they had to say. Um, then I went to Samsung, and they didn't know what they were doing. And <laughs> then I ended up at, at Microsoft, and everything the Surface does for me is what I need. And they don't work on commission there. So I even said, what if I buy this thing here that's got the graphical processing unit? And they said, Okay, so unless you're actually doing animation, you don't need that much firepower. It's just spending another $500 that you don't need to. We recommend this. Right. Awesome, right? And so it comes, it doesn't come with, you now have to buy separately, <laughs> an amazingly sensitive stylus. And I just decided that Autodesk Sketchbook was the program that I really, really liked. And I've been teaching my, so there's lots of stuff I still don't know. What does the lasso tool do? I don't know. I'm sure it's awesome. I have no idea. But I've learned how to draw in layers. I've learned how to make all the different brush sets that I have, um, do backgrounds and move layers around. Mostly I just draw. Mostly I just, like in the beginning, I can see when I look back at my Instagram, mm -hmm. the effort that I was putting into teaching myself and how hard I worked to make these drawings happen. And in fact, I was pressing so hard on the stylus that I was breaking nibs. <laughs> and I haven't broken a nib for a long time, which is great because they're really expensive. <laughs> they are. And now I don't, it's kind of like when you're learning how to drive. Mm -hmm. And at first you have to think about where your feet are and where all the controls are. Right. And eventually it just becomes so much a part of you 
that you get in the car and you just drive yourself you away. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is like for me now drawing. Oh, that's so cool. On the pad. And it makes me really fast because when I work in traditional media, it's generally uh, things that are rather difficult because I guess I like that, like <laughs> ink and watercolor. And you can't really make mistakes in those media. So that is always top of mind when you're working in them. You have to rein yourself in just enough to have good attack with the media, but without making mistakes, because then you'll have to start over again. This is not a problem in digital. You can always fix something. You can always go back and change it, always. The only thing I don't like is that I bought that software, and I'm very happy with it, but a year later it became free, and that sounds wonderful, except that now they require you to sign in occasionally, and if, like me, you like to work on airplanes. Oh, no. Exactly. And you never know when it's going to happen. Like sometimes you open it up and it's fine and everyone knows, sign in. No. Yeah. So if I'm in a Wi-Fi zone, I can just tether my phone Mm -hmm. and use its data to sign in. But if I'm, you know, 35,000 feet, there's nothing I can do except watch a movie. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned you have over 600 drawings that you've done with this. No, that I've posted. That you've posted. Okay. 600 drawings that you've posted. 762 in that particular folder. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very cool. So 600 that you posted, 762 in that folder. What is the most notable one that you've done or most memorable? And I, I've seen everything from celebrities to drag queens and everything mm-hmm. in between. There's a lot of really incredible pieces there. What's your favorite? Oh, it's it's funny you should ask that because quite often the ones that I'm most proud of, people don't really love. <laughs> and. I guess it makes sense. Like people love the drag queen drawings. They just love it. But like on the on the 1st of January, I drew a portrait of an albino Asian model. Mm-hmm. And I was so proud of that being my first picture of the year because um, it, the, requ- the drawing required great delicacy. I don't want to draw to be photorealistic because there's already a photo. Why mm-hmm. should I do that? Mm-hmm. So I want it to look beautiful and realistic and have a good likeness, but still be a drawing still be art right and you can see the veins in her forehead and like there's a gradated background and I'm really happy with that and I'm happy with some of the latter albino portraits that I've done in my practice um, people don't seem to dig them as much but then I can draw like what I consider to be relatively mediocre drawing of Bob the drag queen <laughs> and it gets a ton of likes I mean, who doesn't love RuPaul's Drag Race? There's a whole right? a whole community. There is. <laughs> Very and dedicated. I have to say, I really love that I can draw them and I can tag them and they come back and they love them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they put them in their stories on Instagram right. and sometimes they repost them. And then I get a bump in followers and like I'm, I'm everybody's happy. As you should. Yeah. As you should. So I'm making friends with drag queens all over the world. Amazing. Which I'm happy about. And some of them have commissioned me to draw portraits for them for money. Yes, queen. Yes, queen. Nice. Yes. Very nice. Well, because drag queens, I, continue. I draw them, like, as you know, <laughs> I draw everybody cute and sexy because mm-hmm. I'm not trying to flatter people. I just honestly think everybody is sexy, <laughs> right? And I draw them with such love and joy because I'm so, I just love drag queens. And I think they like that. I think they can see that I'm not, I just genuinely love their aesthetic and I love the gender subversion and I love what they do and um, they love my work and so everybody's happy. I love that. Everybody is cute and sexy. Right? You especially. (laughs) 
man. Yes. I should keep you here more often. I, I love this. Happy. It's just a boost in my, my boost confidence. Boost in your ego, and you've got an amazing liquor cabinet. Everybody's happy. <laughs> Everybody. Yeah, we're sitting here drinking bourbon, mm-hmm. and uh, we're both very happy people. Bourbon you can't get in Canada. <laughs> That's true. We're drinking Noah's Mills bourbon, mm-hmm. and it's the real deal. Delicious. It's stuff you got to smuggle from the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Done <Good>. it. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That's <laughs> Amazing. All right. Question four. And I feel like I, you've talked a lot about some of these moments, but I feel like there might be something else here and not to bring things down. But question four is, can you tell us about a difficult moment in your life? I'm sure there's plenty, but there are plenty. maybe there's one in particular. A very hard moment was, I think, the last night I spent in my house with my husband. It was very sad. Like the next morning, uh, a huge crew of friends was arriving to um, take everything that I owned or decided that I wanted or whatever out of this house that we shared and to my new apartment. And we had spent at that point 15 years together. And it was very sad. Like nobody hated each other. It was just, it was sad. And the next day I was in my own apartment How that worked was um, I went to a friend's apartment in the building. I was just three days after a chemo and I was useless. So I slept while a ton of friends moved me in and unpacked me on that day four years ago. And then at three o'clock, they woke me up and took me into my new apartment. That was all unpacked. It was crazy. But the night before knowing that this marriage, like I didn't marry until relatively late in life. I was not a fan of the institution. And in fact, once I was married, I was very happy as a wife until, uh, well, because of reasons I wasn't happy. I didn't want to be alone during this time. I didn't. And it was incredibly sad. But I lived, obviously. Yeah, which which obviously is most important. Um, That's interesting. I think it's important to acknowledge that even if you're not happy in a relationship, that it is okay and it should be the thing that you do is to actually leave that relationship. And that is, in my opinion, a very difficult and not always a popular opinion. Indeed. (laughs) Because many of us are very comfortable with that complacency of it's fine enough. It's fine. It's the known (laughs) devil. Yeah. And I understand why many people stay in unhappy relationships. Uh, I was actually married, so, you know, I was kind of in it for life. Mm-hmm. And even when it's bad, you know, you can kind of get used to almost anything. A lot of people will stay in an unhappy relationship because of the security. You've got the roof over your head and the car in the driveway mm-hmm. and the washer and dryer in the basement that don't require quarters. I mean, you can live with almost anything, but I decided that I actually didn't want to live the way I was living and I was willing to strike out and, you know, carry my groceries on the TTC instead of in a car. Um, having said that, I did recently find that I had hung on to a relationship that was not fulfilling for far longer than I should have, partly because I really didn't want to be alone mm-hmm. completely. And I was willing to overlook um, the person that I was with was kind and sweet, but also had negative qualities that bothered me. And so when we broke up not that long ago, actually, I found it very freeing because sometimes you really do have to close a door completely before you can open a window and let in fresh air. 
what you're saying resonates with me so much. I bet. Yeah. yeah. I, I was in a relationship for about five years, and that was one that I started when I was in university and My took goodness. me, you know, through early adulthood. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those relationships that was appealing because the person I was with was very responsible, very regimented, but ultimately wasn't for me and wasn't happy. Yeah. But... They can be a lovely person, but not your person. Right. right. And it was so appealing to be with someone who was responsible, that we could share all of these very fiscal responsibilities with. So grown up. Right? Very, it was adulting. I was adulting very hard. but <laughs> <laughs> At a very young age. Very young age. I know. How precocious. <laughs> but <laughs> that was a relationship that I actively had to talk myself into staying in for far longer than I should have. And oh, yeah. I've done it. Yeah. I've done it and I'm I'm like a grown-up plus right. <laughs> in many ways. And you still it's like, but this person is so sweet and they're good to me and they're 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 really hot. And their and, family is good. <laughs> I and love their family. Is, yeah. and, and then you find out the other stuff and you're like, no bye. Yeah. Yeah. So take home message is if you're in a lukewarm so so situation and you find yourself talking yourself about why you need to stay in it. Just go. Preach. Just go. Preach. You got to do it. It's true. And it's going to be no word of a lie. It's going to be hard for a while. And you're going to wonder if you did the right thing. Mm -hmm. And it's going to suck being single. And you're going to not want to go to things by yourself. But get yourself out of the house. Yep. Go to things. Meet people. Um, things will get better. Because there's, there is something that is worse than being alone and mm -hmm. being alone in your bed. And that is sleeping next to somebody that you don't want to be with or sleeping next to somebody that really doesn't want to be with you Ooh, <laughs> yeah Oof. <laughs> that is work like you you could be single for the rest of your life it would be better yep. than that that is a very very granulated kind of hell mm -hmm. yep absolutely <laughs> hope the next questions are nicer i was gonna say do you want more bourbon yes i do yes <laughs> Yes, it's very tasty and also, oh my God. Yeah, I know. That got heavy. Oh, right. We need to take off the, the cap here. This is professional. <laughs> this is professional. Woo. <laughs> did I eat first? No, this is going to be awesome. No, we're good. We're good. We're good. Let the bourbon flow. Here you go. Got to give it to our tech support. We're all, we're all good here. Fantastic. Just keep your tech support happy. <laughs> Believe me. You don't want to know what happens when oh, you're not happy. Oh, it's true. All right. Well, taking us into question five, who or what inspires you the most? What an excellent question. And it's as if I never heard it before. <laughs> In a way, it's my mother. I know that's a cliche answer, but the fact is... Um, she has changed a lot in the latter part of her life. Um, she did a lot of inward looking in the past decade or so, quite late in life, and had to do some really hard work to atone for her past and her past with her children and, in fact, her whole life. And I think she's come out of it amazing. And we have a relationship that's better than we've ever had in our lives. And also, she didn't start getting tattooed until after the age of 65, and she has nice. eight, and she's jonesing for the next one. Like, she's kind of a badass in her own way. That's she so is. cool. So in a way, it's my mother, in a way, um, on a personal level. 
on an artistic level, it would be too difficult to choose <laughs> who inspires me. In stand-up comedy, I have to say the very best I've ever heard is George Carlin. I Classic. love his work. I love his writing. I wish I had seen him live. Um, artistically, oh my gosh, I really can't pick just one. It's like I, I'm a member of the art gallery. I volunteer there. I spend a lot of time there. And I just, like, my brain just wants to look at all these beautiful things and suck in knowledge and then run home and start creating. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, that's not a name. That's not one name. It's, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's the best I can do right now. <laughs> Don't worry, there's no yeah, right or wrong there's answer. Many, there's, there's many, many people that inspire me, and I feel very fortunate that I'm still here to, to learn and to do and to make people laugh and to create. That's incredible. Would you get a tattoo with your mom? Actually, we were planning one. Cool. We were planning one. She was here for two or three weeks in January, and I had drawn a little uh, a little thing on my wrist, and I said, um, I really like this. I think I'd like to get it tattooed, and we decided we were going to do it, and we went to a tattoo studio, the one that um, Ruby Magnitude uses, Okay. and they wouldn't let us in or open the door or whatever, and so it didn't get done. Oh. <laughs> and she is actually looking to get it done without me. She lives in Alberta. And I was like, no, that's not how it works. We have to get it done together. Yeah. When's your so, next yes, visit? I don't know. But she and her uh, new husband are planning to possibly move to Ontario in the spring to be near to his family and her family. So it could happen. That's and amazing. because I would like to train as a tattoo artist, you never know. I could be the one doing it. Wow. Yeah. That's extra badass. Right? Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's cool. I want to hear more about that on All that right. journey. That's not journey. Another word no, for no, journey. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Tattoo artist journey. <laughs> I still want the first class ticket, though. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Amazing. All right. Moving on. Question six. What is the most adventurous thing you have ever done? The most adventurous thing I've ever done was, well, I would say two. One is when I was in my mid-20s, I went to England, uh, meaning to be there for two months. Now, I was born in England. Uh, all of my father's family is still there. And what I did was I didn't come back. I stayed. I stayed. What? I should have come back after two months, and I actually had a pretty fascinating job offer to come back to. And instead of coming back, I decided I wanted to stay in England and I wanted to live in York, so I moved to York. I was 25 years old, and I lived in York until I came back about a year later. And the job offer was gone, and I sometimes wonder what would have happened. My life would have gone in quite a different direction. What job I... was it? Well, before I left for England, I was working at the Canadian Opera Company in Boots and Shoes, which at the time was on the second floor of Malabar's, mm -hmm. the costume house in um, downtown Toronto. And one of the head buyers, Mr. Jenkins, uh, really <laughs> liked the work that I did. He saw how organized I was and how creative I was, I gather. And he said, when you come back, I would like you to be my assistant. And I knew that if I had done that job within a year, I would know where to source anything in the world, anything in the world, any material, any designer, any anything. Uh, and... Even if I didn't want to be a buyer, I had studied costume design and art design, and I would have been, it would have been an amazing education. 
and I didn't do it. <laughs> and I didn't do it. I stayed in England. So that was maybe not the wisest decision, but it was very adventurous to stay in my birthland and spend a year there being being a person living in England. I firmly believe when you do things like that, make decisions like that, there's some serendipity there. I think sometimes things yeah. work out in the way it should, and it sounds absolutely cliche. <laughs> but who knows? Had you done that other job working for the opera company, maybe you wouldn't be doing some of the amazing things that you're doing and will do it's possible forward, right yeah we don't know we don't know what we but don't one know. thing i do know <laughs> is you can't live in regret you can't mm -hmm. like if you if you look back at the past and think about your mistakes mm -hmm. uh, you live with melancholy and regret and if you're thinking too much about the future and what could go wrong mm -hmm. you live with anxiety and worry um, it's happiest if you can live in the moment again cliche mindfulness but if you can appreciate what you have right now on this very day and appreciate everything that's happening, that is, that is happier and healthier and so hard to do. I feel like everything you're saying, I need to just print on a bunch of t-shirts and wear them on a regular basis. Thanks. <laughs> I think. <laughs> a lot of good advice, which I appreciate. Um, and you said that there was a second adventurous thing that you've done. I got married. <laughs> I'm serious. Like in my family, my, my father has been married five times. Uh, my mother is now married to her fourth husband. And I, my brother has had a divorce. Um, really, I didn't have a very good view of the institution. And I met this uh, young man. And after on the third anniversary, the very day we met, he married me. And that was after a year and a half of being engaged, thinking, oh, my God, am I ready to get married? Now, um, I should point out that at the time I was 40 and he was 29. <laughs> like, <laughs> it still felt like a really big deal to get married. It really, really did. And I have to say for many years, uh, well, not that many. Well, many years, I was a very, very, very happy wife. I was very happy to be married and to be looking after him and having him look after me. It was amazing. But... For the first couple of years, I would still look at my left hand and go, ah, like when I saw the rings. And that got old. He didn't like it. Um, so, yeah, to <laughs> me, it was an a huge leap of faith to get married. And it was also an extremely happy day. I made my own dress. Wow. I made my own cake. <laughs> like, Jeez. I saved money. I got exactly what I wanted. Um, and I married this person, and I really, really meant it. That was a huge adventure. And also brave, I think of me, given my family history. That's incredible. Yeah, Thank that's you. certainly taking the plunge. And is there anything that you don't do? You made your own dress and you baked your own cake. I did. That's I do not recommend that. Like I made, <laughs> I made my own dress. It's true. I decided I was never setting foot in a bridal salon. And Fair I enough. made... Uh, now, I did train as a costume designer, mm, and I go. did work at Stratford, like I know my way around a boned bodice, mm -hmm. and the dress I made was beautiful, and I only wore it for six hours. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and the cake I wanted, years before I even met my husband, a friend had given me a subscription to Gourmet Magazine, and in, I think it was like 1996, in the May issue, there was this amazing lemon raspberry wedding cake three tiers on the cover Ooh. decorated with candy pansies and violets wow. and I decided that was the cake I wanted and that is the cake I got I did a practice run with a half batch for my bridal shower 
and then I made the real thing. So I baked it on the Thursday. I iced it on the Friday and decorated it. I also had to hem my wedding dress with its train. And uh, it was crazy. I do not recommend this the day before your own wedding. I don't. But <laughs> it was fucking delicious. And everybody ate the whole thing. And it was really tasty. And I got what I wanted. And I guess I saved a lot of money. That is so impressive. I, I also made the wedding invitations. Jeez, I could not imagine doing any of those things for <laughs> my potential wedding. <laughs> As I say, I do not recommend. <laughs> but I know that your first dance is going to be incredible. Yeah, well, it'll be it'll be off the chain. It'll be choreographed. We'll have flips. It'll be amazing. <laughs> it will. It will. And you guys are the right height together. Yeah. <laughs> like that video of you dancing with a guy that was like seven feet tall, you could barely reach his shoulder. Yeah. Astonishing. I that video has gone unexpectedly viral. <laughs> it, right now, it's over four thousand views. Okay, I, don't think I would had... say unexpected by possibly everybody but you. <laughs> I've I... never had anything with that many views in my life. So for me, that's that's very very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> you are an amazing dancer. Thank it's you. Always a pleasure to watch your videos. I I wish you would post more. Thank you. Oh. That's so nice. I feel like you're saying more nice things about me in this podcast than I am about you. So, Oh, that's not true at all. <laughs> Let's ask the tech. It's not true at all, is it? He's just nodding and smiling. <laughs> like, smart man. <laughs> He's well-trained. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. All right. Kimberly, um, question seven. In my eyes... You are incredibly successful. And as I've mentioned before, you're someone I've really admired for quite some time and, and your talent is astonishing. And so question seven is, what do you attribute your success to? And even if you might not think you are successful, in my eyes, I definitely see you as very, very much that. I'm so flattered that you would say that. And thank you so much. Uh, what I attribute it to is mostly hard work. I know that's a cliche, but people say, oh, you're, you're so talented. Um, and it's true. I was, I was born uh, wanting to draw. Uh, my mother says, she claims it's true that I could draw before I could walk. Um, I, wanted, I wanted something in my hand and paper before I wanted to get up and toddle. Wow. So I've drawn all my life. Um, it's, just, it's just the way I'm wired. Having said that, I work really, really hard at it. I do. Mm -hmm. um, I don't just treat it as just a thing I do. I work hard at it. I went to um, OCAD U when it was OCA, and I did four years there. Mm -hmm. I went to Dalhousie University. Um, I've had various jobs. I draw all the time. And when I have students, I tell them, you have to draw all the time. Um, so it's like it's like Edison said, it's 1% it's, uh, inspiration and 99% perspiration. So I work hard. I look for opportunities. I admit that, like many artists, I'm not the very best at business or at marketing, but I'm always out there hustling as much as I can. I work hard at my drawing. I try to tag the right... I shamelessly tag everybody. I tag British Vogue. Right? <laughs> and sometimes they like it. As you should. Right? Um, and I, I look for opportunities, and I speak to people. And generally, I'm actually genuinely excited about what I do and the people that I work with. And I think that people can tell that I can't lie, which is why I never play poker. So um, 
it's genuine. Like I just really, really want to make beautiful things and make people laugh. And I work really, really hard at it. But it's always fun. Yeah. It's like they say when you're doing stand-up, if you don't look like you're having fun, nobody's going to laugh. That's fair. And I genuinely love what I do. Now, having said that, it's not like uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day. Like That is crap. Like even the best mm-hmm. job in the world some days is just a job, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I just, I work hard and I look for opportunities and I try to do what I'm good at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because it's just thinking, you know, this is something that you love, but then you also depend on to pay your bills to a degree. So To a degree. To a degree. So how do you stay focused and motivated to continue doing this, even if it's a job that you really dislike? Um, there is no job that I really dislike that I'm still doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do anything, any job, any terrible thing you can do for probably two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, I'm really trying to build careers in a couple of different directions and trying to monetize them with, you know, uh, it, it varies, right? Because I work in a creative industry, but I just keep working and I just keep hoping. Um, there are times when I get very depressed about everything, and I think that's not at all uncommon for any creative person. And I just have to ride it out. Sometimes my brain does bad things, and I just have to work through that and trust that after a good night's sleep, I'm probably going to feel a little better, mm-hmm. and that I have friends and family that really care about me, and that um, sometimes when I go to a gig, I, I occasionally wonder, have I lost it? Like, have I lost my edge? Have I forgotten how to draw? And the answer is no, I never do. I never do. But that little bit of stage fright, I think, keeps everybody honest. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, myself, I feel always a little bit nervous before I do anything where I'm in front of people or if I'm performing or anything like that. It keeps you from being complacent. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It it keeps it top of mind. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's fair. And you mentioned just now having moments where you are sort of struggling with staying focused in that mental health how do you stay grounded and positive or get out of those darker places well it's really not easy um i don't think it's there is a lot of stigma attached to any kind of mental health and uh, problems even though it's known that depression is quotes the common cold of psychiatry and i do live with depression and anxiety And again, it's something I just have to work hard to work through and to live with. And so for me, it's a combination of um, medication, which I'm glad works. Mm -hmm. And sometimes um, I'm able to talk to people, not always. And it's just remembering that we can get through this. It's an illness like any other illness. Mm -hmm. It's an illness that many, many, many people work with. And I think there's a, a very unfairly high percentage of creative people that live with it. Mm-hmm. As we know, it just seems to be something that's like the uh, free gift with purchase that comes with creative wiring. <laughs> um, I just keep on keeping on. I just, I'm, in darker times, I just I just hang on somehow. I just do. Um, and I never stop drawing. I don't always post them. But I never stop drawing and I never stop writing. That's important. Something I don't know that you know about me, but before there were blogs... Before there was live journal in MySpace, it was online journals. I do remember that. <laughs> and I was one of those people. Great. I was one of those people back when you had to hand code it. 
And I have many, many years of my writings online. And in fact, I was very blessed this summer, winter down under, when I was uh, living in New Zealand for a couple of months, I took a side trip to Australia and I met up with people that I've been friends with online for 20 years and wow. had never yet met. Wow, 20 years. 20 years. I'm old. No, no, but that's, that's incredible. That it you was incredible. Have... It was a very, it was a really, really life-affirming moment. And I was really fortunate that even in that moment when I was with these very dear friends, I was able to say, we can always remember this moment that it happened and that we've known each other and liked each other for all these years and here we are together. So how did that feel, meeting someone in person after being friends online for 20 years? Incredible. Um, one friend flew in from Melbourne to, uh, to Adelaide for the day wow. to spend the day with me and another friend. And when I saw her at the airport, she ran up to me and she threw her arms around me and she said, you're real. Oh, right. You're <laughs> real. So nice. I know. Oh. I know. I was just I will. Whenever I'm feeling really down, mm -hmm. honest to God, I remember that moment. Oh, that's so touching, man. I feel like I'd be really nervous or I, I don't know. You know what? I live through cancer. Um, <laughs> not much makes me nervous anymore. Uh, like I did stand up and even a friend uh, who is a producer at Space who does tons and tons of interviews he said, you mean you got up on stage and you talked for five minutes? Oh, my God, that's so scary. I was like, not at all. Not at all. Like, I didn't die. Like, not much is scary anymore. It's so funny. Uh, the second biggest feared thing in human beings is public speaking. Ridiculous. Right? Like, what's going to happen? Like, <laughs> what's the worst thing that happened? They don't like your jokes. Big deal. Big deal. Wow. So right? how did you get into stand-up comedy? Because I, I I understand this is a fairly recent thing. It's a very recent thing. <laughs> I was really blessed to have comedian Anna Gustafson um, mention me on Facebook and say, a full side of support for Kimberly Whitchurch, the newest one of us. So Ooh. I've joined this tribe and I could not be happier to have a new purpose in life. So what happened was... Um, in the summer, I developed uh, a couple of years after cancer treatment, a new complication, uh, lymphedema. Great. Great. Thanks, <laughs> cancer. And I went back to Gilda's Club just to check in with my uh, favorite peer support counselor and say hi and tell her what was going on. And she said, so our comedian in residence is Anna Gustafson, and she has the comedy show every month, and it's tomorrow night. Why don't you come? And I said, I like to laugh. And so I went along and I heard her and I heard the three comedians that were donating their time. And I thought, I, I, I think I would like to do this, I think. And so after the show, I approached her and I asked her if she was giving workshops at Gilda's. And she said, why are you interested? No, but why are you interested? And I said, I was. And so um, I spoke for a few minutes to her and to the events coordinator and I made them laugh and um, Anna was wonderful. She said, well, there is open mics, and she recommended some, and she basically got on it, and I call her my sensei now. <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks later, I went home that night, and I wrote my first routine. Wow. It's crazy. Uh, like, for years and years and years, I have said one of my missions in life is to make people laugh, and yet it somehow never occurred to me 
to just do stand-up, like I was doing it through caricatures. And just talking to people and telling jokes and being that person that always turns everything into a dirty joke. Whatever. So <laughs> She doesn't want to turn everything into a dirty right? joke. <laughs> so I'm that friend in any crowd that can turn anything into a dirty joke. We need to hang out more often. <laughs> right? Well, we totally do. So what they did was they recommended a particular open mic night because mm. that is how people get started. Mm -hmm. And that is also how seasoned comics try out new material. And they told me about one called Punch Up Comedy which happens every Wednesday from 6 to 8 at the Emmett Ray Club on the Jazz Club on College Street. And they said it's run by women. It's very women forward. It's a really nice room. Amazing. So the next week, I'm telling you, this all happened really fast. I went to check them out. And somebody said, like, are you going up tonight? I said, no, no, tonight I'm just, I'm just listening. And I told the bartender that. And I said, I think next week I'm going to come up and do a set. And he said... Tell you what, if you bomb, I'll buy you a shot. <laughs> That's right. And? So I wrote a set, and there was one other person there that was brand new that night. It was a 17-year-old son of a woman who's a professional comic. And there was people that I'd heard their same set last week, and they had a headliner. And when I went up to do my set, I'm really, really happy to say my sensei was in the audience. She was. Aww. And I went up and did my set, and I stepped off stage, and the bartender said, no shot for you. Like, yes! Yes! Yes, Queen! Oh my god, that's it amazing! It went really well, so I did a couple more open mics, and I went to a room which um, I found very, uh, let's just say male energy in a bad way. And mm. I thought, no, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. But the following month, so one month I saw the comedy show and thought I would like to do this, and the following month, Anna Gustafson put me on the bill. She put me on the bill. So it was my first booked show. Wow. And it was at Gilda's Club. And so I talked about having cancer and how being bald is not altogether bad. <laughs> saves time, saves money. Sufficient. Right. <laughs> and uh, I've done a couple more open mics and I'm doing a booked show this coming Thursday. And that's just what you do. Like I've been, I've been very, very lucky to have a, a professional who's been happy to guide me into this world. And so far, it's been wonderful. And That's it's been great. like the career I didn't know that I was aiming for. That's incredible. And that's, I would say, what literally most... incredible, like it is unbelievable. Yeah. And that's one of the most <laughs> amazing things about life. You do not know where you are going to end up next. You don't know what project, what hobby, what thing you're going to end up just falling into. Every now and again, I've had moments where I say, I'm glad I lived. And this is one of them. This is one of them. That's cool. I'm so excited to check you out. Thank you. That's going to be so great. Yeah. All right. Question eight. What item or items could you never live without? At the moment, I would have to say it would be my tech, which is very limited. I have um, an Android phone and I have... Um, a Surface Pro tablet, computer, and these are the things that I really need. Now, having said that, two weeks ago, I lost my purse, my wallet, everything in it, and all my ID, <laughs> like, oh, God. a bunch of money, <laughs> my favorite lipstick, oh. headphones, all of the, and the coach bag. But oh. at the time, even at the moment, the first thing that I thought was, thank God it wasn't my phone or my computer, mm -hmm. because these are the things that I use 
every single day. Like the phone is almost like my prosthetic memory. Mm -hmm. It's my gateway to all the knowledge of the world. And the computer is what I use to create and send my images out into the world. And it would be very difficult to replace either one of them. I lost a UB, uh, I, I lost a memory stick um, in that in that robbery, but I didn't lose my things that I create with. Oh. I would say also in coffee, but I know from experience <laughs> that I can give up caffeine. Mm -hmm. Like it takes about two weeks, but you can do it. But mm -hmm. why would you want to? What's your favorite coffee? Ooh, I really like a flat white. And I like a flat white that's made by a person who has knowledge of Australian coffee culture. Ooh. Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> you cannot get a bad coffee that I have found in New Zealand or Australia. I lived for two and a half months huh. in New Zealand recently. And even if you buy a coffee in a petrol station, mm -hmm. it's going to be made on a barista machine and it'll be espresso-based. Really? Yes. You wow. just cannot get bad coffee there. You can't. That's amazing. And yes. I've, I've heard in Australia that the coffee is very, very expensive. Is that true? I would say that it's expensive in New Zealand and Australia in a way. Mm. Like when I, when you, but in a way not. Like here when you go out and you have, say, a latte mm. at Starbucks, it's going to be like $4, four fifty, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be the same if you go out for coffee in New Zealand or Australia, but it's going to be excellent. <laughs> Which it isn't necessarily at Starbucks. Yeah. Now, uh, the muffin that you buy will be four dollars, right? <laughs> Not two fifty or two ninety five. Right. However, all the taxes are included, and uh, you're not expected necessarily to tip mm. because they pay their waiters a decent wage there. Isn't that a revelation? <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello, North America. Hello. Include taxes in your prices and pay your people a decent wage. Yeah. It's not rocket science. <laughs> I know that's a whole other whole other podcast. conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> All right. Question nine: Is there anything you'd like to promote? Why, yes. Depending on <laughs> depending <laughs> on when more. this airs, uh, I will be appearing at the Against the Collar Comedy Club this Thursday night at a show that's after nine thirty. Um, and it is my second book show. Uh, other than that, if anybody follows me on Facebook or um, Kimberly Whitchurch, I will always tell you when I'm going to be performing or when I'm going to be having an art show. Because I also sometimes have art shows. And that should be something that you are absolutely able to attend because... Kimberly is incredibly talented. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Oh, my God. And I really do need to see your stand-up. I'm very excited. Thank you. Cool. I'd and love to have you there. Amazing. And what's your Instagram handle? My Instagram handle, I have a couple of different Instagram accounts. The one that I'm most active on, every single image on it is digitally created, is draw.she.said. Draw, she said, but with dots. Um, <laughs> with dots. <laughs> That's the other one. My traditional media portfolio can be viewed at Kimberly Tattoo You, all one word, mm -hmm. at which I reveal that I am a breast cancer survivor and that I would love to be the person that tattoos beautiful, realistic-looking nipples on other breast cancer survivors and that I'm seeking an apprenticeship, which is shockingly difficult to find in Toronto. Really? It is. Like, even though I'm a professional artist and I have, I think, a pretty bang in portfolio, and even though I have 
no word of a lie, clients that are waiting for me to be trained. Wow. Yeah. Um, there is nobody in Toronto that does like really beautiful 3D nipple tattoos. I would like to be that person. Um, but I'm finding it very hard to get the apprenticeship. Um, but I'm finding it pretty easy to get into stand-up comedy. I think it's because more people think they can draw than that thing they can get on stage and make people laugh. I don't know. That's so interesting. Wow. Okay, so big call out in Toronto. If there's anyone affiliated with a tattoo shop or a tattoo parlor who would be able to take Kimberly on as an apprentice, I feel like this is a huge opportunity and a really important market to be able to fulfill. Uh, I think that's incredible. I've actually seen some viral videos pop up on social media of people in other geographies who do a similar thing. True. There's yeah. little Vinny in the States. He's got yep. now three locations mm -hmm. and he has trained his daughter to do this. Mm -hmm. And I've got a good friend who lives in Brooklyn, a young woman that had breast cancer, and she's going to see him mm. when the time comes. Right. Um, most of us who have had breast cancer, who have had reconstructions, as I have had, uh, people don't realize that you don't necessarily have a nipple. What you have is, I would say, a Barbie boob. <laughs> That's like a boob that looks good in clothes but doesn't have a nipple. And they can surgically create part of a nipple, although not in my case for medical reasons. Um, but when it comes to making a beautiful, realistic, 3D-looking nipple, uh, your surgeon is probably not the person to do that, even mm. though OHIP will give them some money for it. Mm. And in Toronto... Uh, well, there are people that do it, but the very, very best practitioner lives in Peterborough. Mm -hmm. And according to one of the best breast surgeons I know in Toronto, she has up to a three-year waiting list wow. for her breast and other cosmetic tattoo. And that is a long time to walk around with a Barbie boob. That, <laughs> that is a long time to walk around with now, a Barbie boob. There are, of course, some people that opt with their reconstructions to have just decorative tattoos of flowers or pink ribbons or badass, mm. whatever they want. But if you want something that looks like a nipple, um, her work is amazing. When you look at them, they're like, they're as pretty as candies. Mm. They are. And they have shadows and they have highlights and they have the little, the little uh, projections and they're not perfectly, it's perfect. Now, I know that I can do that. Mm -hmm. I have done that just painting on myself. Right. And I've shown that to lots of people. Um, but I guess not the right people because I haven't found the right apprenticeship. And it's important to find exactly the right one. I do understand that. And I'm not your typical tattoo apprentice. I know that too. That sounds like such important work. I want to help people. Yeah. I do. That's, that's really amazing. And the fact that this is an act that you can use to be able to give back Absolutely. to that community of people that you are so close to. Well, I sometimes volunteer at Gilda's Club, um, which helped me very much indeed. Um, what I do is I sometimes give art tours at the Ontario Art, the art Gallery of Ontario um, because they very generously donate community memberships to Gilda's Club. And so there's a certain number of people that can get tickets every month. And I'm the artist that leads them around and tells them stuff. And the first time I did it, I said to them, okay, you guys, okay. So yesterday I came around and I ran around and checked out all the things I wanted to show you in the next two hours. And I tried to memorize like dates and titles and names and everything. But like I'm a cancer patient just like you. Mm -hmm. And I've got chemo brain so I can't remember anything. And that's just fine. They still have the labels. Right. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. right. That's <laughs> right. So that was the volunteer work that I was doing to give back. And 
There are times when I think I would very much like to be a patient advocate mm-hmm. for tattoo, for, I beg your pardon, for cancer patients, mm-hmm. um, because it's a very scary world that you're entering, and there's so much going on, and sometimes people find it very difficult at this hard time to advocate for themselves. Um, but I don't necessarily have the right clinical background to go into that role. Mm-hmm. So I always look for ways to, if I can, reduce the stigma of having had cancer and to help people because there are many, many people every day that are being diagnosed. And it's difficult and it doesn't have to be as difficult if you know what you're getting into. That's incredible. Man, you are a lady with chutzpah. Thank you. And I I think you are doing incredible work. And I really do hope that there is someone who can connect you to an appropriate tattoo parlor institution that can help you realize that goal. Because I think that is work that really needs to be done, especially locally, if that's not something that is possible currently. There there are people that do do it locally. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I just think that being an artist that for years and years and years have already drawn naked people mm. um, and being a woman that's had breast cancer myself, you I think it. I'm I think I'm uniquely placed to be able to help people if I can do it. Mm-hmm. But I really do need to be trained in this technique because I already have drawing and being an artist, knowing color down. Yeah. I don't know anything about this particular medium. Yeah, if I had Barbie boobs, I would certainly <laughs> trust you over some other random artist any day of the week, considering you. your work. So I would have you draw my nipples any day. <laughs> I already have. Well, maybe not no, the actual no, no, nipples. No, not the actual nipples. <laughs> not the actual nipples, no. Remember that time when you yeah, came yeah. in and you like looked different and I was all, can you still fit your corset? Yeah. Yes, I can still fit my corset. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're all good. Cool. Um, I had another question. Uh, You'd mentioned there's artists that do different kinds of art, including pink ribbons. And I know pink is very much related to breast cancer in general. It's almost that pinkification of breast cancer. Pinkification. Pinkification. And I, I know there's a lot of opinions around that. And I was curious to get your thought, because I know some people find it um, a little bit infantilizing and other people are indifferent. I'm just curious to understand your point of view, if you have one, about everything being pink um, with um, breast cancer. I do, as a matter of fact, yeah. have a point of view. Oh, I would it. say I go in the opposite direction. I don't find it infantilizing. I find it more sexualizing. It's like, save the boobies. You know, <laughs> save second base. Uh, it's true. People sell it because it's boobs. And like, I think that is incredibly wrong. And it also, like, if I could say anything, I would say I wish that more men realized that breast cancer is not just a women's disease. Because even though it's a very small percentage of men that get breast cancer, it's a very high percentage of the men who don't make it Hmm. because they don't realize, A, that they can get it. So by the time they present to a doctor, it's already stage four. Oh, that happens. And everything in breast cancer is geared towards women. Mm -hmm. But it's a person disease. Men have breast tissue, not very much of it, but they can definitely get cancer in it. And so that's part of and what is pink doing for them? Mm -hmm. And when it comes to so-called breast cancer awareness, like the NFL wearing pink and so forth, I mean, um, I know people mean well, but like, I think we're already aware of breast cancer. 
I think mm-hmm. we are. <laughs> like, you know, like, is that really helping people get to chemo? Mm-hmm. You know, is it helping people that need help with their housework? Mm-hmm. Like things that actually help people. Um, things are a little bit different, I think, between Canada and the United States because in the United States, it's all about the Susan Komen charity. And that has come under some fire in recent years because of the way they use their funds, perhaps. I mean, people can feel good about buying something that is pink and thinking that their money is going towards helping people. But there is some talk about how much actually is going towards that cause Mm -hmm. and how much is going towards the organization. Right. And so so where should people hypothetically donate their money to to support breast cancer, either research or people who are going through that? I think with any good Google search, you can find things that are much better fits for your charity dollar. For instance, in Toronto, you could donate to Gilda's Club, which is not just breast cancer, it's all cancers for all people. It's true. You can donate to Princess Margaret Hospital, uh, now called Princess Margaret Cancer Care Center, I think. Um, If you really want to, if you have a friend who has cancer, help that person. Make Mm -hmm. that person's life a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Offer to come over and clean their house. Mm -hmm. Believe me, that's what I needed when I was sick. Ask them if there's groceries that they need because I couldn't necessarily leave my apartment. There were times when I was hungry because I didn't have the strength to leave my bed, make myself food and clean up after it. I just... What I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I was hungry because I live alone. So you can do it in a micro fashion by donating your time or your money to a person or persons that you know, or you can donate to places in your own community which work directly with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that, that's just my opinion. Uh, do your research first, but don't think that if you buy a pink mix master that you've done your bit. That's really important information. I really appreciate you sharing that. And again, not necessarily what I would have thought of even before having this conversation. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, one final question for you. What is a lesson you learned the hard way that you'd like to share with our listeners? The lesson I learned the hard way is to listen to your gut. Uh, it's a cliche for a reason. Cliches usually have a large grain of truth at the center of them. It's like if you think a situation is not right and you're trying very hard to fit into that situation, chances are it actually is not right. Um, If you think a person uh, means well but is not good for you, uh, listen to your gut. If somebody says, oh, I'm a black sheep, pay attention. They know what they're talking about. Um, that, that is the thing that I wish that I had known much earlier in life. Listen to your gut and pay attention to it because it's probably right. Leave a situation when you need to. Um, excuse, don't try to be polite to stay around. Um, get out. Get out if you have to. Speak up if you have to. Say nothing if you have to. But listen to your instincts. That's incredible. And I couldn't think of a better way to close things off with. So Kimberly, thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here. I've learned a ton and I hope all of you have as well. And so with that, we're going to wrap up. Thanks so much, legit ladies and more and uh, see you next time. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Find us on Facebook at Legit Lady Podcast. That's L-E-G-I-T-L-A-D-Y Podcast. And on Instagram at Legit Lady Podcast. On Twitter at Legit Lady Pod. That's Legit Lady P-O-D. And please rate and comment on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you love what you hear, share it broadly and proudly. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>